first and foremost, you got to realize your audience doesn't care. I mean, they don't care that I'm blind. They just want a good story. Yeah. If you can tell a great story, you earn the right to share your message. But a lot of people want to share their message and they haven't told a great story yet. When I die, my biggest hope is that being blind is not in the first line of my obituary. I didn't learn from my father by what he said. I learned by what he did. And, you know, we live in a world where it's all said and done. There's way too much said and not enough done. And productive lives, as long as we got something to do, someone to love, and something to look forward to. Mm. As soon as you don't have one of those three things, you're in a world of trouble. People try to put us to death. Talking about my generation. Art is the new fun. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Who's going to carry the boat? My generation. Welcome to the TLT Movement Podcast, a podcast for tomorrow's leaders today. I'm very excited about this episode because we are here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, interviewing the incredible Jim Stovall. He has written over 50 books, three of which have been made into feature films, one of those feature films being one of my favorite movies of all time, The Ultimate Gift. He is an incredible person who founded the Narrative Television Network that repurposes movies to make them more accessible to the blind. He's an international speaker. Forbes magazine said that Jim is one of the most extraordinary men of our era. He has been chosen for the International Humanitarian of the Year Award, joining the likes of Jimmy Carter and Mother Teresa. And he's done all of this while being 100% blind. So amazing, so inspirational. And in this episode, we're going to try to deep dive into his creative process and how he's able to do everything that he's done. So without further ado, Jim Sokoval. Well, I'm delighted to be with you guys and uh, look forward to our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So to my understanding, you lost your eyesight after being able to see for, like, what age did you lose your eyesight? Well, you know, I uh, I grew up and I had um, normal vision for the first 10, 12 years of my life. Then in the teenage years, I, I, I you know, I had to wear glasses, but I didn't think it was going to be uh, something. And then I was um, planning to be a professional football player, and uh, the scouts and coaches assured me I had the talent to do that, and I'd been an All-American. But then in a routine physical to go play another season of football, I was diagnosed with a condition – that would cause me to lose my sight. And, uh, and then, uh, I did slowly lose my sight through my twenties. And then at age 29, I became totally blind and that was 35 years ago. So I've been totally blind for 35 years. Wow. So at age 29, you, you were able to see the world. I mean, that's yeah, a little bit. I could see it perfectly when I was 15 or 16. Sure. And, uh, so yeah, I, I've experienced life as a sighted person and a partially sighted person and, a totally blind person. I could imagine that having the aspirations that you had and then once becoming completely blind, not really being able to pursue, pursue the football dreams and all this, that you had some mental struggles. What Did you experience anything like that? Sure. I mean, um, you know, I was angry and mad and sad and all those things because I had I had tied so much of my future up in becoming a professional football player. And 
when I wasn't able to do that, I didn't know what I could do. And then uh, through a set of circumstances, I discovered uh, Olympic weightlifting and I became our national champion and I got to finish my career as a weightlifter and I loved that. And then, uh, was that while you were blind? I was, I was slowly losing my sight. I could I see. see a little bit, but not very much. And, I see. Uh, but when I first experienced weightlifting, I thought, uh, you know, I, I, I saw an exhibition of, from the previous Olympic games and I thought that's something I could do even if I was losing my sight. Yeah, sure. So you're, you became completely blind at 29. How long did it take? When did you decide that you weren't going to let this hold you back? Well, deciding not to be held back is, it's a daily decision. I still do it, you know, so I don't want people to think you just, you know, snap your finger and finally I found the key and I don't sure. worry about it anymore. <laughs> but when I first went totally blind, I moved into this little nine by 12 foot room in the back of my house. And in my little room, I had my radio, my telephone and my tape recorder. And, you know, at age 29, I really thought I would never leave there again. The thought of running a television network or writing 50 books or <laughs> having nine of them turned into movies or sitting here in our conference room talking to you would have seemed uh, as foreign to me as going to the moon. I couldn't imagine doing anything. And I sat in my little nine by 12 foot room for several months and, uh, you know, getting more depressed and discouraged. And sure. uh, finally, one day I figured whatever it is out there that I'm afraid of can't be any worse than this. So I, I ventured out and uh, walked down the driveway to my mailbox, took me probably 20 minutes to, to do that. And then that was the beginning of the life I live now. All right. You said nine of your films have been, or nine of your books have been yeah. adapted? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. I thought it was just the uh, the three, Ultimate Gift, Ultimate Life, Ultimate Legacy. Yeah, uh, that trilogy, and then I did a movie that I actually wrote and produced and did the book called The Lamp. Oh, and cool. that's with Academy Award winner Louis Gossett Jr., Jason London, Meredith Salinger. Great, great movie. Loved it, and then... Then I did a holiday thing called A Christmas Snow that is out there. And then I did Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy. Oh, yeah. Which is a docudrama I did with the Napoleon Hill Foundation. And right now they are working on uh, adapting my film, uh, my movie uh, version of my novel, um, Will to Win, uh, into a movie they're working on that right now. So the, the, that, that's the ninth one. Can you give any details about that new uh, that new project? Well, Will to Win is the third in my series of books. I call them Homecoming Historicals. And they all take place at modern-day high schools and at 21st century high schools. But the namesake of the school in uh, strange and unusual ways gets involved with the student. The first one takes place at Harry Truman High School. And uh, it's called One Season of Hope and... Uh, there's a kid there that's dying of leukemia and wants to play his last season of football, and it's it's his story, and his name's Bradley Hope, so I called it One Season of Hope. Nice. And then uh, I did a, a book about kids going to Napoleon Hill High School and what they learned from Napoleon Hill called Top of the Hill. And then Will to Win is about a young lady named Sky Forrest, and she's a Native American her parents have been killed in a car wreck, and she's being raised by her 
traditional Cherokee grandmother. And so she's kind of struggling between being a 21st century teenager and lives with this uh, traditional Native American woman. And her dream is to play softball in college, get a scholarship and be able to play softball. But due to budgetary cuts, they um, cancel the team. So all the girls quit and she decides she's going to uh, go play baseball with the boys. And, mm. uh, and it's based on a true story. A young lady named Sarah Hudak did this down in Texas. And uh, I, I heard about her through Sports Illustrated and I thought that would be a cool story. And so she starts playing baseball with the guys and at stressful or difficult times in her life, um, she encounters Will Rogers. So it's kind of a fun thing. And, oh, cool. Uh, and it, it's called Will to Win. And uh, it's the first of a uh, trilogy I'm writing. And I think the other two will be movies as well. Will Power and Beyond Will. And we'll do those in the coming years. But uh, for right now, we are... Um, we're working on Will to Win. Nice. All right. Well, I look forward to it. Yeah. So, Jim, um, this is a question that might be a little weird, but I'm curious that if I had the ability to give you your eyesight back, would you want it? Would I want it back? Um, you know, it would be convenient, maybe interesting, but... Uh, you know, it's not like a burning desire thing in my life. Okay. I mean, as I sit here right now, I don't know anybody I'd trade places with. I live a wonderful life. I do everything I want to do. So, um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, probably so. I mean, uh, I mean, I used to be an Olympic athlete. If you could, uh, you know... Give me the physical strength I had 30 <laughs> years ago. That would be interesting, but it really doesn't matter that much. Sure. You know, so it's 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 not as big a deal as you would think. I mean, every few days um, I talk to a reporter or an interviewer like you somewhere in the world. And, uh, you know, at, at those times I think about it because it's it's obviously a question. And But, um, you know, other than that, I really don't think about it that much. It's not that big a part of my life. Well, that's pretty cool. Is, is, do you think that's because of, of the heightened senses? I remember when I heard you talk, you said that you're able to listen to books at 6x speed just because yeah. you're, you're heightened ability to be able to retain. You know, I think anybody could do that if they wanted to. I, I, um, I was in the early 90s, I was part of a experiment uh, the U.S. Department of Education did to see how fast can people listen to audiobooks and learn and retain the uh, the messages and uh, you know and you could speed it up a little more and a little more and a little more and um, after the experiment was over I just kept going so you know it's <laughs> cool. enabled me to read I read a book cover to cover every day and becoming a reader made me want to be a writer I mm. I mean when I could read with my eyes like you and most of your audience does i don't know that i ever read a whole book uh you know and now reading one every day really opened up the whole world to me and i i um that made me want to be a writer that's amazing how you said that you think anybody's kind of able to enhance yeah. different do you know of any techniques that somebody might be able to artificially enhance one's senses well i i think you know any sense that you become more conscious of or any skill 
that you perform more often is is um, is enhanced. Uh, uh, you know, if you know, I have a good friend who's a, a homicide detective, and I call on him. I write a series of detective books, and uh, you know, I call on him from time to time, and he has the ability to go into a room for just a minute or two and he can leave and he can tell you everything in it, where it is. And you could go in and move one thing. He would know. Wow. And, and that's not a skill he had in the beginning. It's just something he developed over the years. I, I mean, you know, if you go to a daycare center, there may be 40 kids in there yelling and playing and a mother can tell her kid from all the other kids. Right. Well, that's not a skill you, she developed. I mean, it's not a skill she was born with. I mean, you just develop that over time. So I think whatever you do um, constantly, um, you know, it, it, it becomes a, a skill or a habit that, that serves you, and that's worked well for me. How, how do you think your heightened uh, reliance on senses other than sight have influenced the way that you craft and perceive stories? Do you find that it brings, like, a different richness to your work? In my books, particularly in the novels, I mean, uh, I only, I mean, I write about things that uh, I've heard about or read about. I mean, I have books where, you know, someone's climbing the the west approach to Mount Everest. I have books where people are at the deepest part of the ocean at Mariana's Trench in a submarine. I have everything, you know, and uh, I've never been there. I've never seen it. It's, <laughs> sure. just, it's all a matter of... Uh, you know, to me, you know, getting the facts right. And then, you know, I have a team of people that makes sure that my books and movies are, are, are accurate, but, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, you, you can make up about anything you want to. And, uh, and then my detective series, I, I have a character named Jacob Dyer and he lost his sight in the Vietnam war. And, uh, and he, runs uh, Jacob Dyer runs a detective agency called Dyer Straits Lost and Found where he and this gorgeous assistant he has and this ancient British limo driver the three of them go around they solve mysteries and crimes and the readers have to first determine you know who's the bad guy and then second how did Jacob figure that out I mean he can't even see so it it's um it's been fun to do that and uh you know, uh, if you and I were to go to an airport or a shopping mall or somewhere, you know, out in nature, um, there would be things you would be aware of I, I I have no knowledge of. Sure. But there would also be things I'm aware of you would not know about. And so it's just a matter of using the skills we have. And, uh, and I think uh, anybody can enhance any of those. That's super cool. In this... Age of advanced technology. How has innovations over the past few decades impacted your creative process? Are there any specific technologies that have enhanced your ability to write and produce the movies? Interesting. I write a weekly syndicated column that appears in several hundred magazines and newspapers in North America and Europe and Asia. And I write every week. And uh, several weeks ago, I wanted to do piece on artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so I told my readers, instead of me telling you my opinion of AI, I'll let AI do it. And the, the advantage for someone like me, I have 50 books out there and over a thousand columns. So 
it has a lot to draw from. So it can sound almost exactly like me. And it's, it's sure. truly, truly amazing what it can do. And, you know, this is going to be a part of our existence. I, yeah. I'm doing an experiment right now with one of the major movie studios on the Will Rogers Project because I had been reading about the new Indiana Jones movie. Harrison Ford did it when he was 81 years old. Well, they took this enhancement technology and they put these computer points on his face and on his body that the cameras picked up on and changed it. So long story short, you know, 81-year-old Harrison Ford played 39-year-old Indiana Jones. Right. If you watch the movie, it's amazing. So I heard about this and I thought, wow, what could I do with, you know, I mean, in 1930 to 1935, Will Rogers was the number one box office draw in America. So I've got this body of movie. He was he died in a plane crash in 1935. But, you know, can I take these 80-year-old movies and turn them into modern-day Will Rogers where, you know, instead of me getting an actor to play Will Rogers and Will to win, we have Will Rogers playing Will Rogers. And right. um, the studio is working on the technology now. It'll be another month before they even have an experiment for me. But, you know, these things change the way we do things. Uh, when I made my first movie, The Ultimate Gift, in 2008, it was filmed. I mean, the same way movies were filmed for the, the whole 20th century. And, um, you know, uh, 20th Century Fox was my partner, and we would, uh, you know, you would shoot film all day, and then they had people that all night would develop this film, and in the morning... You got up and hoped and prayed you had something on this film. Right. And that was in 2008. We did the sequel in 2011. By then, it had gone digital. So I sat there with the director, Michael Landon Jr., and uh, yeah, he would shoot something and run it back and play it for me. He said, what do you think? And, you know, um, yeah, it was really amazing. And uh, Steven Spielberg edited his last movie on a laptop on a coast-to-coast flight. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, technology is just truly really amazing. I mean, you can do anything. And uh, and one of my advocations, it's certainly not my vocation, but uh, one of the things I really love is playing music and I write and uh, play music. I used to play guitar, now I play mostly keyboard, but I don't have the time to do it like I wish I did. Sure. If I didn't do what I do, I would probably be a musician, but... Every few years, I'll go into the studio and write something and play on somebody's album or do something. And, uh, and you know, I used to have to really, really work at it to be keep up with these uh, studio or touring musicians. Now, um, the last time I was in the studio, as I'm playing, it, it is printing out or coming up on a big screen where the producer's sitting there, all the notes. Wow. Well, I did a perfect take of a piano piece and I missed one note in this last deal. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to get to do that again. He said, no, why don't you just let me fix it? And he went over to where that note was on the computer and just moved it. <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden, it's, it makes Jim look better than he is. And so, uh, I mean, technology is like anything else that happens. I mean, it brings advantages and challenges. And, uh, you know, certainly... Uh, I have the same concerns about the creative process everybody does that sees what uh, the computer does, but wow, it, it can uh, it can bring a lot of benefits to it. 
So you're embracing AI. You're not necessarily think it's the downfall of society. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, I live here in Oklahoma where we're doing this interview and in the, uh, in the summer it gets hot and humid. I may not like the heat and humidity, but it's coming. And so I, I make the best of it. You know, I mean, right. I mean, artificial intelligence, the, the, that toothpaste is out of the tube. It's going to happen. <laughs> you can't put it back in there. Right. So what we've got to decide now is what do we do about it? Use it as a tool to the yeah. best of our advantage. Yeah. So you said you play music. How, how can somebody hear it? Um, it you know, you can go on. Oh, there's a great recording artist named Kelly Morrison. And I'm on a few of her albums. Or you can Google around. Uh, probably the best song I wrote is uh, called The Sunset Song. And uh, anybody that wants to hear it, you can probably find it out there. Or email me, Jim at Jim Stovall, S-T-O-V-A-L-L. Well, it's Jim at jimstoval.com, and uh, they'll just send it to you. And I did it. It's my memory of what a sunset looks like. And wow. I used to do live arena shows with uh, music and, you know, me speaking and a lot of things. And I would close with that, and then the producers of the show created this laser light thing so the audience would experience a sunset. So it's Dang, that it's, sounds cool. Yeah, it is. It is. He. He was a Broadway producer and put it together. So it's really neat. That is neat. So you've mentioned music. That one seems a little bit obvious, but being that sight is often the center of our experiences, what are some of your favorite sensory experiences that bring joy and inspiration to your work? Well, here at the Narrative Television Network, we, we make movies and television accessible for 13 million blind and visually impaired people in the United States and millions more around the world. And we add extra soundtracks to help people hear what they can't see. And that's been a real blessing to me. But then I also enjoy, um, I'm a huge uh, sports fan. I mean, uh, almost every night I'll have a football, baseball, or basketball game on. And now thanks to the satellite, I can get a radio broadcast of virtually any game anywhere. Yeah. And so I love that. And, um, and my music and, you know, my audio books. I mean, uh, um, you know, I read a book every day and uh, that has changed my world. That's huge. So what advice would you give aspiring authors and filmmakers, particularly those facing significant personal challenges? How can their adversity be transformed into a source of inspiration? Well, um, First and foremost, you got to realize your audience doesn't care. I mean, they don't care that I'm blind. They just want a good story. Yeah. And, I mean, if you can tell a great story, you earn the right to share your message. But a lot of people want to share their message, and they haven't told a great story yet. Mm. And they're shoving stuff down people's throats. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think um, our challenge for myself as a, as a blind person is no different than anyone else. I've got to come up with something that matters to people. You know, about half of my books are nonfiction, how to do this or the art of that. And, and basically that's a matter of, uh, if you want to write a nonfiction book, write down 12 or 15 things that you know, that you think your readers ought to know. And for each of those things, tell me how you know that and an example. And when you first found out, tell me a story each one of those and each of those 12 to 15 become your chapters and you got a book and 
And if you don't know 12 to 15 things people ought to know, don't write a book. Go find, <laughs> go find out some more things that people ought to know. Sure. And then if you, if you want to write fiction, a novel, and make a movie, you've got to create compelling characters, characters that people matter, and then you go, you got to have them doing things that interest people. For example, if you've ever been to a Little League baseball game, you probably had a friend or relative as one of the little kids. No one else would ever go to a Little League game. You know, you're not driving, you know, there's a Little League game over there. Let's stop and watch this sure. eight-year-old kids <laughs> play baseball. I mean, but the reason it's interesting to those people is the, the characters they really care about. So if you could create characters that people care about, but have them doing interesting things. And now you can't just have eight-year-old kids. Let's go watch eight-year-old kids sit around and play a video game. No, we're not going to do that. Right. We've, we've got, so we've got to have people we're interested in doing things we care about. And then you've got a story and you, you can put it together and, and it, um, you know, and it, you know, I am convinced as a writer, I have 10 million books in print among my 50 titles but that pales in comparison to the impact of just one big movie. And mm. I'm convinced that if William Shakespeare or the Apostle Paul or, or, or Mark Twain were alive today, in addition to writing books, they'd be making movies. Absolutely. I think it, it truly does have the most profound effect, especially with people my age. Yeah. I mean, The Ultimate Gift is one of my favorite films of all time. It's so... I've never watched a scene that made me laugh out loud alone and then immediately cry it was the scene of a little girl in the boardroom sipping the soda yeah yeah, yeah. And i'm just laughing so hard because it's such a hilarious yeah abigail, scene. abigail breslin played that little girl and you know she was an absolute unknown when we hired her but she was just finishing up making her first film little miss sunshine and she got nominated for an academy award and then we had her next and Everybody in Hollywood thought I was a genius. We just got lucky. The kids, <laughs> sure. Was, but the first day she came on the set and did her part, I told the director, get me somebody that can type some uh, pages. I mean, this kid's part is growing because she is, uh, you know, there are, there are very few people of each generation, particularly as little kids that can do that. And she was one of them. And, uh, and she and I stayed in touch. What was fascinating to me is, after she did our movie, she went and do a, did a Broadway show, and she played Helen Keller on Broadway in The Miracle Worker. Wow. And so after she left me, she went and spent two months at the New York School for the Blind with a bunch of blind kids learning how to act like she was blind and, uh, and uh, fascinating. In fact, she called me one day and said, Jim, I'm learning how to be blind, and you don't do it right. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you very much, kid. I, I work very hard in not being blind. And a couple of years ago, she was here just in Bartlesville, you know, 60 miles up the road, doing a film with Julia Roberts and Meryl Streep. Um, it's called August Osage County. And she was amazing, but I went up to spend a day with her up there. And, you know, and I, you know, it's amazing. To, you know, here's Meryl Streep and Julia Roberts. And I told her, I said, kid, you know, obviously I was the high point of your career. And after that, look at all these people you got to work with. It's horrible. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, that's a, that's unbelievable. She, she is so her. good. I'm lucky to have her. She was fabulous. So you mentioned something there that I found interesting. She was so good that you started adding her more into the film. Is is sure. this is this something that's pretty common in in this high 
echelon movie making is the script kind of is able to be flexible? Um, to a certain extent. I mean, uh, yeah, you, you, you get to it and, uh, uh, there are many, many versions of the script before you get to the set. Once you get to the set, it's it's pretty much gospel. You want to stay where that is because the director and the and the crew and all them they're they're taking their cues off what you say. Right. But uh, there are changes that are made right there, and uh, you know, I I remember we were doing a scene with Brian Dennehy where he's really annoyed with this kid who keeps saying stupid stuff. You know. Jason Stevens and, you know, and, um, you know, the script called for him to say something like, wow, you're really annoying and stupid. And he told the director, I don't need to say that. And the director says, well, Brian, how are they going to know that you think he's annoying and stupid? And Brian gave this director a look and said, okay, that's how you're going to know. I mean, you know, (laughs) you look at him like you're an idiot too. And, um, you know, great actors can do that. And, you know, and I find the, the very best actors, want fewer and fewer lines. They, they, they don't need to say anything. And, mm. uh, you know, that scene you're talking about where Abigail's sitting at the, uh, at the conference table drinking her soda through a straw, Bill Cobbs, one of the great uh, character actors of all time, is sitting down at the other end of the table, and he's playing a lawyer, and he doesn't say one word. He just sits there like Buddha or something. Right. But he's just truly, truly amazing. So, yeah, I... I um. You know, I've done a little part. I do a cameo role in each of my films, and I'm there enough to see how great people are that really, really do that. Right. And uh, it's kind of like when I play the piano and I go in the studio and uh, and you realize how great these musicians really are, so you try not to embarrass yourself and you just stay out of the way, you know. And, uh, sure. You know, I did a... Uh, Oh, one of my books. Uh, every few years, I'll do a celebrity book, or uh, and the last one was called Ultimate Hindsight, where you know I go out and interview movie stars, athletes, politicians, millionaires, billionaires, and they have success principles. And you know, just I was in the middle of doing a, a music thing at the time, so I thought, wow, I just so I interviewed uh, Leon Russell, Jerry Lee Lewis, Billy Joel, mm. and uh, just three of the great piano players of all time, and. Uh, you know, you, you, you realize they are incredibly gifted and they also work incredibly hard. And that's the same thing I find with uh, people in the movies. I mean, there are certain people that just, I mean, they're very, very gifted and they, um, but they also work harder than most people do at it. How do you prepare for an interview like that? To interview those people? Yeah. Um, similar to you, I'm sure. I mean, I do my research, and I have people that, uh, you know, things I want to know. And, uh, you know, and I'm always looking to pick up something that uh, they've never done before. They don't generally talk about because uh, particularly if a high-profile person, if you start interviewing them, they've been asked all these questions a sure. million times. So you're really not talking to them. It's like asking them, uh, what's your phone number? Okay, I'll give you my phone number. <laughs> sure. Uh, where do I live and all that stuff. Where do you get your ideas from? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I, I think um, if you can ever get one of them talking about something that matters to them, then you can go somewhere. Uh, I started in narrative television where um, 
you know, the only programming we could get in the beginning were a bunch of old movies, classic films. So I interviewed classic film stars that were in the movies. So my very first interview was 1991 with Catherine Hepburn and then Jimmy Stewart and Frank Sinatra and Michael Douglas and those kind of people. And uh, these are people that have been interviewed for 40 or 50 years. Sure. But if you can ever get to the point where they, they're talking about something that they've never talked about before, now you're having a real conversation. Right. I, I asked Catherine Hepburn, if you hadn't been an actress, what would you do? And she said, I'd, I would have probably been a physician. I would love that. I said, what about that? Would you love? And all of a sudden we're talking about that or, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, or I remember I interviewed Frank Sinatra. He was doing a thing with the symphony down in Dallas and I went down for the day and I said, you know, if you could go back to the old neighborhood where you first started Hoboken, New Jersey, what do you want people to say about Frank Sinatra? And he said, wow. And we thought, you know, and he, he said, you know, I, I, I just like people to think, you know, that Sinatra kid put on a decent show. I mean, he, he did, you know, and, and that's all I want to, you know, he, he could sing it, you know, and I'll never forget when I was leaving him, you know, I was just about to get on the elevator and he, he, he was way down the hall and he said, Hey kid. I mean, I was only, I was probably 40 years old, but he called me kid. He said, Hey kid, I hope you live to be a hundred years old. And the last thing you ever hear is me singing you a song. And I thought, wow, this totally, totally. You know, and wow. when you can get to talk to them about something that matters to them. And one of the toughest interviews I ever did was with the singer, Andy Williams. And, uh, I mean, I just wasn't getting anywhere. And, uh, I mean, I'm getting these one word answers and, you know, just, you know, you're dying here. And, sure. <laughs> and I, years later, uh, Larry King did a book called tell it to the King about, you know, 10,000 interviews he had done. And I was so gratified. He said, hardest interview I ever did was Andy Williams. And I thought, well, maybe it's not just me. But finally, I knew that Andy Williams had had a golf tournament for years. And I said, you know, tell me about your golf. And now all of a sudden, you know, now we're two guys talking. And right. And wanted to talk about it. And, it, you know, so it, it's good when you can get to something that really matters to them and they haven't talked about, you know, a hundred times. And, uh, um, you know, I know whenever I do an interview – a good interviewer like you is going to ask me about being blind. I mean, sure. I mean, you, you got to ask the question, but, uh, I, Ray Charles became a friend of mine, uh, for the last 20 years of his life. And, uh, you know, I remember asking him near the end of his life, I said, Ray, how do you want people to remember you? And he said, when I die, my biggest hope is that, uh, being blind is not in the first line of my obituary. Mm. And I remember when one of the young ladies, Kelly, came into my office and said, I'm sorry, they just put it out over the news, Ray passed away. Mm. And I said, uh, get me the uh, obituary from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today. And they had him up in a few minutes. And, you know, I was so glad. Anyway, Ray Charles was a genius, a trendsetter, best-selling artist. They had all this stuff. And then when you get down into the third paragraph, they said he was blind. Oh, that's, that's that, awesome. That works for me. So I, I would ask you, you know, what you want people to remember about you, but I, that's been asked a thousand times, you know? So I want to get into something else that's a little bit more personal. Um, let's talk about your father. Mm -hmm. To my understanding, he has recently passed away. Correct. Um, are you willing to share a little bit about this? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, as we sit here today and speak, my father passed away uh, 90 days ago. Mm. And, uh, you know, and it's not a... I mean, my father lived to be almost 92 years old and was healthy and happy and productive until the last few weeks of his life. So, I mean, we should all live so well. Uh, three of my greatest mentors, uh, Coach John Wooden, Art Linkletter, and Paul Harvey, all did some of their best work in their 90s. And But my father um, was one of those guys that... Uh, didn't talk a lot. I mean, I, I didn't learn from my father by what he said. I learned by what he did. And, you know, we live in a world when it's all said and done, there's way too much said and not enough done. And um, he was a man of total integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have yet to find anybody that has ever said anything bad about my father. And, uh, and he, uh, you know, he expected me to be my best, and a lot of people don't know that, you know, I'm my parents' third child. The first two died when we were very young. I had a brother that died of cystic fibrosis mm. and a sister that died of leukemia. So the the Abigail Breslin character, Emily, that you were referred to earlier, that wasn't fiction. That was a little girl dying of leukemia just like my sister. Wow. That's where I got that character from. So I'm my parents' third child, and... Uh, I'm going blind, and, uh, you know, and I remember, um, you know, they said there's nothing we could do, and I went to the great eye clinic uh, down at the University of Florida, and uh, they had one of the world's experts in retina disease down there. And I spent a day with him, and he finally just said, Jim, there's nothing we're going to do. I mean, you're going to be blind, and you're just never going to have a normal eye. Mm. So I was giant kid I was you know I was 17 18 years old but I I mean I came out I was crying and there's my mom and dad and uh, I said uh, you know I said dad he just told me I'm, I'm never going to be ordinary and dad said well I never figured being ordinary was anything worth aspiring to he said let's go back to Oklahoma and you can start figuring out how to be extraordinary mm. and that has always stayed with me and uh you know and it's um you know, I miss him. I, I still pick up the phone several times a day to call him. I feel like so much of him is with me. Anybody that's ever seen one of my books uh, or experienced the movies uh, has met my father. I, I, um, if everybody had been raised in my house, I'd have to find some other way to make my living because, um, uh, you know, I, I got it all from mom and dad. Wow. It, it really sounds like his guidance helped shape you. Um, do, do, do you have any other particular core memories that his guidance helped shape your resilience and determination? Yeah, I mean, um, I think, you know, just expecting you to be better all the time. I mean, um, I mean... Uh, I always knew that my father approved of me and my work and was very proud of it, but I always knew he expected more. I, You know, when I started having books on the bestseller list and, you know, books made into movies and I was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and 
you know, dad would always read my books and say, now that may be the best book you've written so far, but I don't think it'll be the best one you'll ever write. Wow. So you always came to him and, and, and you, you know, you got the, the pat on the back, you got the award, you got the accolade, but you also got the challenge. And, and I think to whatever extent we can, we should be that to people in our lives. I mean, mm. in our lives, 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 I mean, lives I mean mm. in our lives I mean mm. in our lives I mean mm. um, really engaged in your life if you look at it and consider do I have something to do someone to love and something to look forward to you're probably missing one of those that's so huge I want to take a step back of what you said I mean I think you your father having this higher expectation for you always kind of goes against the current cultural ideology of you are enough and and you're doing enough and and all this stuff i feel like it's not really pushing the youth to aspire for more or, or continue doing great things so i think that's huge and i i gotta say my dad was the same way as far as no matter what i did or if i was at the top he was always like yeah that's great but you know um there's still work to be done and we expect greatness consistently and I, yeah. I thought that that helped me so much. Yeah, I think uh, the whole participation <laughs> trophy culture, you know, hurts our kids. And, I, you know, I think kids should be encouraged and, sure. uh, and acknowledged for what they do. But, um, you know, I um, coming in second or coming in fourth is, uh, is, is part of life. I mean, and that's... Uh, you know, everybody doesn't get the gold medal. And, right. Um, you know, if you go in my office next door, I I have a gold medal. Well, I, I participated in the national championship the year before that. I got a bronze medal, too. It's not up in my office, but I mean, <laughs> I, I got one. And, um, you know, and, and the bronze medal is what helped me get a gold medal. Mm. You know, had they come out and said, you know, Jim, we appreciate you showing up. I know you did your best, so we'll give you a gold medal too. I'd have probably been done. Sure. But uh, no, I, you know, it, it, uh, that's what makes it work for you. And, um, you know, and if you want to be a, uh, an author or a movie maker or an entrepreneur or anything, man, you're going to get a lot of rejection. So you just, uh, you just move on. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it kind of relates back to what you were talking about in the beginning of the episode, how, so many people try to use maybe their disability or mm. race or sex or whatever mm. as the catapult to be like, look, I'm I'm being oppressed, so listen to my story, as opposed to developing the story first yeah. and then coming from that place. I think that that's so huge. I mean, there's nothing more absurd to me than racism. I, uh, you know, it doesn't make you more or less qualified or anything. I, I am friends today with Stevie Wonder, and we met not long ago in an airport, <clears throat> and we had some time to kill, so we were hanging out, and we were talking about the whole racism thing, and Stevie said, now, Jim, 
you're white, aren't you? I said, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and he, he said, yeah, I'm black. I said, that's what I hear. And, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, but Jim, you know, white people really aren't white. They're like snow and paper's white. White people are kind of a light shade of brown. I said, yeah, mostly. And, and black people are a darker shade of brown. I said, yeah, well. And he said, so this whole thing's over a different shade of brown? I said, uh, best I know, Steve. I don't know what to tell you, man. And, uh, and he's just, you know, I mean, the whole thing is, is absurd. Yeah, it is. Now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Elevate Life Educational Foundation. That makes the TLT movement possible. There's never been a more critical time to elevate your life. We are starting a movement, TLT movement, helping tomorrow's leaders today to transform, step into their greatness, and have breakthrough in the areas of emotional intelligence and spiritual intelligence so they can step out in life and do hard things, learn their identity, step into their purpose at a young age. We're training them through different courses of action, we have the STAND program, that's three days with a one-year mentorship, the LEAD experience, which is every summer a five-day, and then SERVE. So they learn that when they change their world, they can change their world, making an impact. There's nothing more rewarding than helping young people discover their identity and purpose. Help us with the TLT movement, getting these tomorrow's leaders today to stand, lead, and serve in their world. Check out our website at tltmovement.com to see our next training and mentorship. And there's a nomination form. So nominate those young people in your world. Let's get them registered today and help us to elevate life. Let's go back to your dad a little, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Other than integrity, what aspects of his character do you find yourself reflecting on most often? And how does his memory play a role in your day-to-day life and in your creative pursuits? Oh, I, you know, I think most of it, I mean, I remember from the time I was a little tiny kid, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. Mm. And I mean, I'm always the first guy to everything. I mean, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. Um, you always pay your bills instantly. Um, you know, you, you become known as that person. Um, you're very, very cautious about your words and the, the, the language you use because it never goes away. Mm. And that's more true now than it's ever been. I mean, Big time. I feel for these people that put things out on the internet and, uh, you know, or, or these young people, they're getting tattoos. And if you want to get a tattoo, it's fine with me, but, uh, man, there are very few decisions I made when I was 16 that I want to live with today. <laughs> now, when I was 16, we had long hair and beards. I had long hair and a beard. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, then I got to be about 20 and I thought, I don't want that anymore. I just, Cut it off. Well, the, those tattoos don't cut off. I mean, right. so, you know, you, you get to a point, you're going to live with stuff forever. And, um, and you know, that's, that's an important part of that. And my father, every time we went somewhere, met somebody, had an experience, he said, you need to learn three things every time you go somewhere. You know, so I knew whether we went to a museum or the store or went to church or met somebody, he said, okay, what are your three things, you know? And, and, and that has impacted me. I always want to learn something from somebody. Mm. Uh, Gandhi said, everyone is my superior in that I can learn something from them. And I think that that's really true. But my dad kind of embodied that because I was just raised with the expectation that, uh, 
you know, you, you, you got to learn something. And if you assume there's three things to learn, you'll find three things. Yeah, that's huge. Do you have a specific example of one of those things that stand out to you of an experience where you met someone and it had the most profound impact on you when you didn't expect it? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you, when you meet people, I remember when I first started this company, Narrative Television, and we had a big press conference and there, there are people who came and, and the media and after they all left, my assistant told me there's one little old lady waiting to talk to you. And she, she was blind and they brought her over and, you know, and she said, uh, you know, I, I've never been able to see a movie and I'm so excited about what you're doing. And I said, what movie would you want to see? She said, when I was a little girl, they did Wizard of Oz. So I, I said, well, I'll have it delivered to you within a few weeks, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. And, and then we got to talk, and she said, I wish there's something I could do for you. But she said, <clears throat> every morning at 6.30, I will pray for you and, and the people that work for you that you'll be able to do this. And, you know, there was a lot of days when I was trying to break through with narrative television that uh, – I thought, well, you know, at, uh, at least uh, Miss Susan is praying for me. So that's about all I had, you know, but at least you got that. And, um, you know, so I always told the team, we may not have a lot going for us this morning, but we got a prayer. Or at least we got a prayer today, you know. And that, that was a big deal to me. Wow, that's, that's so huge and quite inspiring because we know the power of prayer is so real, sure. but then to let somebody know you know, that, that you will pray for them and then to be, to have the integrity so that they trust, like, yeah, they're going to actually pray. It's not just a shallow word. So can you give me maybe another example of how you infuse your father's nuggets of wisdom into your work? Well, I, I think the idea that everything's a learning opportunity. Um, you know, I, I'm in the mess. 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 Desire to learn and an amazing curiosity. When he passed, my mother had died a few years before, so. You know, he had a 10,000-book library in his home. Wow. That um, I ended up donating most of it to a university. But, uh, you know, he just, uh, you know, if he wanted to know something about it, he would learn about it. And now, I mean, it's good in that, uh, you know, we can Google something and know immediately. The bad thing about it is, uh, you know, my dad would go read a book about it. So not only would he learn the one little thing he wanted to know, he'd learn thousand other things about it right in depth so you know and that was cool and uh you know so many great things i mean uh, my father was in the united states navy when he was really young and uh you know i mean all the things he got to learn in that experience and you know it it was during the korean war i mean most guys just did their time and went home but uh, dad uh you know he was served in the mediterranean and uh I mean, he went to all the major, you know, 
Paris, London, Greece, Israel, Egypt, all these places and went to museums and saw all these things. I mean, you know, things that people would spend a lifetime doing. He did in two years. And wow. just the, um, you know, just the experiential part of it. Yeah, that insatiable thirst for knowledge is, yeah. is profound. What, what were some of his other hobbies? My dad was a big fisherman. We, he and I would go fishing a lot. And <clears throat> fishing was a big part of his life. And my dad was a professional baseball player briefly in the minor leagues. He never really? got to play in the major leagues. But, uh, you know, and <laughs> baseball and fishing – were invented, I think, so guys can talk. Women talk great. They're, they're <laughs> much more evolved than we are. Guys won't just sit around and talk. Sure. So, you know, but if you're fishing, now we're not talking. We're fishing. We're holding a fishing rod here. So then it's okay <laughs> to talk. Or you go to a baseball game. I mean, baseball games are 90% nothing and 10% baseball. And, and so you have a lot of time to talk. And so Dad and I enjoyed fishing and baseball. And... Dad's claim to fame. He was in a minor league game when Mickey Mantle was in the minor leagues. And then they played a game against each other. And it was right after that, my dad told the coach, I'm going to go get a real job. I mean, I uh, obviously. (laughs) Because he was just so good. (laughs) Yeah, he said, you know, he said, I I thought I was a ball player until I saw him. Years and years later, my very first book comes out. You don't have to be blind to see. And it was my story of losing my sight and becoming a weightlifter and, uh, and starting narrative television. And the book came out, and I was on Good Morning America. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting in the green room backstage getting ready for my slot on Good Morning America, and there's one other guest that day, and it's Mickey Mantle. And so he and I were talking. I was telling him, you know, my dad played in a minor league game with you, you know, and everything. And he said, is your dad still living? I said, yeah. He said, can you get him on the phone? I said, probably. So I called, and... I said, Dad, and he said, I thought you were gone Good Morning America today. He said, your mother and I are sitting here, and you're not on. I said, Dad, hang on. I'm going to be on in a minute, but there's a guy here who wants to talk to you, you know. And so my dad got to talk to Mickey Mantle. It was kind of fun. But, uh, you know, I, I I just think all those things are uh, part of the experience. Yeah, absolutely. Is it... Wow. Your dad sounds like a, a really cool guy. Yeah, yeah. What what do you think his lasting legacy will be? Well, um, he worked 57 years for one nonprofit organization, the university, and, and their associated stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, his work will be remembered and continue to have a life of its own. And then he worked in the administration at the university, so... You know, if you go out to the university now, the the administrative center is called the Stovall Administrative Center. I mean, my wife and I paid for it, named it after my mom and dad. And, uh, you know, and uh, so that will always be there and be a part of who he was and what he did. Nice. All right, so we are kind of wrapping up the show here. I'm going to ask you something that we ask just about every guest, and that is what do you think you would tell your younger self for our audience's sake? Uh, We regret the things we don't try, not the things we try and fail. So if I was talking to the teenage Jim Stovall, I would tell him, try more, believe more, you know, 
capture the big dream. Don't be afraid of nothing. Mm. Just don't be afraid of anything. And I mean, the only thing we should fear is to not try and leave our best effort, our creativity, our gifts on the table. But otherwise, just uh, let it go. Do anything. And uh, because uh, fear is not your friend. And, you know, the biggest dream you have is alive and well. And so I would tell my younger self, don't worry about nothing. Just go ahead and do it. Very nice. All right, so how, how can our audience find you if they want to maybe purchase your books, watch your films? Where, where should yeah, you they can go? go? You can go to Jim Stovall, S-T-O-V-A-L-L, jimstovall.com. All right, we'll link jimstovall.com down below along with some of his movies and most popular books. Hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a lot. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Great job, man. You do good work. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the TLT Movement Podcast. If you liked what you heard, maybe it will bring somebody else in your life value too. So please share with a friend, subscribe to our YouTube, and comment and let us know what you think. Our podcast is available on Spotify and Apple, and we would very much appreciate a five-star review. Visit our site, tltmovement.com. 